Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A dot com. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Well, I'm Buzz Knight. I'm the host of the Taking a Walk podcast series. And everybody has a story to tell. And our guest today has uh, investigated stories during his storied career. Uh, he uh, inaugurated his column, The Annals of Communications, along with countless other outstanding columns for The New Yorker, uh, starting back in the early 90s. Uh, I became hooked by his writing instantly. And he's written national bestsellers, including Three Blind Mice, How the TV Networks Lost Their Way, Greed and Glory on Wall Street, The Fall of uh, the House of Lehman, and Google the end of the world as we know it. His new book is called Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. And please welcome to the Taking a Walk podcast. Even though it's virtual, we like doing these in person when possible, but when the opportunity existed to speak to Mr. Auletta about his book, uh, I gladly jumped on it. So welcome, Ken Auletta, to the Taking a Walk podcast. Thanks, Buzz. Good to be here. It's an honor to speak to you. Uh, you take on the notorious quite frequently in your uh, in your investigation. What goes into your process when you select a book topic? Interest, curiosity. I mean, in Harvey's case, I had profiled him in The New Yorker in 2002. I came very close to being able to nail him as a sexual predator, but I couldn't get any women to go on the record, so we couldn't run it. And he denied, so I had his denial and I had no counter to that. Um, and then when he was exposed by two New York Times reporters and then Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker in October of 2017, I was left with several questions that, that it seems to me merited an exploration. One, what made Harvey Weinstein the monster he became? Um, 
the sexual monster he became. I mean, I profiled, when I profiled him in 2002, I, I portrayed and tried to explain what, why he was such an abusive boss and, and the people in Hollywood. Uh, but the sexual side of it, where'd that come from? I was interested in that. Two, how did this guy get away with abusing women for four decades and no one ever blew the whistle on him? People had to know. And his people, it, when you interview people who work for him, they said, well, we knew he cheated on his wife. Well, didn't many know more than that? I wanted to explore that. Third, I, I thought Harvey was an interesting profile of power, how power is used and abused. He was a master at it. So I thought that would be a fascinating angle to explore. And, and lastly, I was fascinated in the relationship between the brothers. His younger brother, Bob, two years younger, and he had been best friends, full business partners for years. And by the end, they got into a bloody fist fight, and, and Bob hasn't spoken to Harvey since early 2018. So what happened, the dynamics of that relationship, was also something that propelled me to want to do a biography of Harvey Weinstein. Well, and I know you were further attracted into this uh, unattractive character um, when you went to sit in the courtroom during his uh, his trial, right? I mean, you were there every day, pretty much, weren't you? I was there every day, and and I was fascinated by Harvey, the assertive Harvey. When you watched him in court, and I always took the the aisle seat on the in the fourth row, which gave me a direct line of sight to Harvey sitting at the defense table. I was stunned at how passive he seemed. That the aggressive, domineering Harvey suddenly was receding in that courtroom. And and as the women would testify against him, sometimes he would fall asleep. And I was just in, really surprised by that, but also interested by that. Were you freaked out when he looked at you sometimes in the courtroom? I mean, with that, uh, that look of his? Well, Harvey actually at one point, his best friend, Dr. William Correo, who we been a Buffalo, University of Buffalo roommate of years before, came to trial with Harvey many days. And I went up to introduce, during a break in the court proceedings, I went up to introduce myself to Dr. Correo. And I said, I'm doing a book on Harvey Weinstein. Could, could we talk? He said, well, let's go in the corridor outside and talk. And as soon as he said that, Harvey, who was seated just inches away, uh, said, Bill, don't talk to him. And Harvey doesn't like me. He didn't like the profile I did in 2002. In the end, though, surprisingly, Harvey and I had email exchanges from prisons where he did answer some of my questions. Not all of my questions, but some of them. And, and, and I think he did that just as a defensive mechanism. He knew I was writing a biography of him, and no one else was doing one. And, and he wanted to try and protect himself. Well, I didn't bring my stenographer here uh, for this uh, uh, taking a walk and I don't want to destroy that story obviously because that's a key uh, element here uh, but do you want to talk a little bit about that exchange that uh, at least occurred there uh, right up to almost you publishing this book well I was very persistent in wanting to interview Harvey and I would be talking to his public relations person Judah Engelmeyer very talented, and, and I thought a fairly straight shooter, uh, as 
these folks go and come. But I said, I want to interview Harvey. And he says, Harvey doesn't want to talk. And then finally he comes back, he said, Harvey will grant you an interview if you agree to ask him any negative things that he's not replied to already. You will present to him so we'll have an opportunity to respond to it. I, I said, I would gladly do that, but I want to be able to ask any questions I want. And they said, no. I said, deal breaker, over. So a week later, I got another call from his representative saying, Harvey would agree to talk, but no taping. I said, deal breaker, no. A week later, Harvey comes back again, because obviously he wanted to do it, and I was in a stronger negotiating position, I thought. He said, no transcript, no transcription of this. I said, deal breaker, no, I need a tape and a transcript. And finally, I said, only ask the negative questions. I said, no, I want to be able to ask all my questions. Deal break. After about two months of negotiations, he finally relents and agrees on my terms. I could ask any question I want. I could tape it. And I can have it transcribed later, you know. And we, we're going to, he's not allowed in prison to have internet. You can't be on the internet, but you could be on the phone. So I would do it on the phone. And we, the presumption is I would have multiple phone interviews because he's generally only allowed about an hour on, for a phone call. And I was driving into New York the next morning to meet at his lawyer's office with Harvey on the phone from Buffalo, from the prison in Buffalo. And his L.A. lawyer, he's got a trial coming up in Los Angeles in the fall. His L.A. lawyer calls me and says, Mr. Ouellette, I'm Mark Worksman. You don't know me. I'm Harvey's lawyer. I cannot allow my client on the eve of trial in Los Angeles to risk talking to you on the record uh, about, you know, what he's going to be tried about. And so that, that ended that. So we didn't have that interview. And at that, then I went back to his PR person. I said, would Harvey answer email questions? And then he agreed to answer. And some he had, but the big questions I wanted to ask, including this one, uh, he didn't answer. I wanted to ask him, Harvey, when you put your head on a pillow at night, after raping, let's say, Jessica Mann, who was one of the women who testified against him at the criminal trial, after raping Jessica Mann, how did you explain to yourself what you had just done? And I was, I'm fascinated by what his answer would have been. He didn't answer that question. I suspect his answer would have been, it was a fair trade. She wanted something from me, a career in Hollywood. I was willing to help her, but I wanted something from her. She was a grown-up. She knew what she, she was willingly, it was consensual. She wanted to do it. And I think that in his fevered mind, that would be the explanation, I suspect. I think it's so fascinating how the book digs into, you know, the darkness of Harvey going back, obviously, to, you know, the college years in Buffalo and even going back to that uh, that byline that he, he shared with um, uh, Corky uh, Berger, Berger um, in the student newspaper called Denny the Hustler. I mean, Ken, after I read that, I had to go take a shower. Well, not only that, but Corky, it was, uh, was co-bylined by Corky and Harvey. And Corky, years later, told the Buffalo newspapers, I didn't write a word of that. It was all Harvey. And, but it gives you a premonition of what was, what was percolating in that fevered mind of Harvey. I mean, were you surprised how far back his behavior span? Well, what's actually surprised me in trying to analyze 
what made Harvey the sexual predator he became. When I reported with his childhood friends and I went back to junior high school and high school, there was no evidence of him abusing women, very little evidence of him dating women, actually. When he went to the University of Buffalo, the first three years before he dropped out at the end of his junior year, I could find no evidence of him abusing women. When Harvey's abuse began is when he had power and fame as the head of a big, successful rock promotion company, Harvey and Corky Presents. And that's when he first abused women. And, and as best I could detect, the first woman he raped was Hope Damore, who was an assistant of his at, at Harvey and Corky Presents, who he raped and, and at a New York hotel. So, did you ever study psychology in your schooling? Because <laughs> it seems like you might have. Well, I did, but I also spent a fair amount of time talking to psychologists about rape and about people like Harvey. They, they acknowledge they we're not talking about Harvey Weinstein. We did, he hasn't been a patient of ours. We haven't studied him. But they help describe what makes a rapist and why women, more importantly in, in terms of the trial, why women who are raped often keep in touch with the person who raped them. Because the, the weakness of the case against Harvey in the criminal trial in New York was the six women who testified against him, four of them continued to have a relationship with Harvey after he sexually abused them. In some cases, even having consensual sex, and two of them had consensual sex, but we certainly keep in touch with him wanting to get ahead in, in, in the movie business, and he was a, a potential ticket for getting ahead, they thought. So the prosecution had described, why would women do that? And, and that was a weakness they had to get over in order to convict Harvey. And among the things they did, they, on the stand, they got the women to acknowledge why they continued to keep in touch with Harvey. And they gave various reasons for this. I was in denial. I blamed myself. I was afraid of Harvey and his power. They give all sorts of reasons, but then they did something else. They called to the stand Dr. Barbara Ziv, who was an expert on rape uh, at Temple University in, in Pennsylvania. And she said that one fact she cited, and it just sticks in your mind, 40% of the women in America who are raped continue to have relations and, and, and conversations with the person who raped them. And which again helps explain and gives a reason why these women kept in touch with Harvey and allowed the jury to, to see them in a different light rather than being ambitious, aggressive women who were just overly ambitious for their careers as Harvey's defense was claiming. They, they, they allowed the jury to see them as, as victims. I mean, when you really, um, as you doing the book go up close and, and deep here. You ever feel sorry for the messed up flaws that this guy that had everything really exhibits? I don't feel sorry for Harvey because Harvey was guilty and deserved, I believe, to be convicted and, and sentenced to jail. I, I often do think, since I'm a human being and, and he's a human being as monstrous as his behavior was, what it must be like for him to go from the pinnacle of power, as he had, from doing these amazing movies, which he 
distributed or produced. I mean, just think of the galaxy of movies. You know, My Left Foot, Crying Game, Sex, Lives, and Videotape, Shakespeare in Love. Uh, amazing uh, array of, of movies that is responsible. And the talent to do those movies was real. And, and, and for him to go from that pinnacle of power, standing on the Academy Award stage as often as he did, to suddenly eating baked beans in a prison, sitting in a wheelchair, which he is, uh, with a stent in his heart and, and blind in one eye and, and high cholesterol, severe diabetes, taking 20 pills a day. You know, how could you not think about what's going through that man's mind and, and how painful it must be for him, uh, even if he thinks, as he does, that he's a victim? He's still every day getting up in a prison hospital ward and in eating that starchy food. You talked about Bob, his brother, earlier. Um, I mean, as you know, we learn about Bob and the role Bob played, I mean, Bob wasn't the nicest guy either, right? Bob, Bob one of the things, they both grew up in a home. One of the things I discovered in the reporting dominated by their mother, Miriam. And one of the things Miriam did was yell all the time, particularly at Harvey. Harvey, you're too fat. Harvey, stop eating that. Harvey, what are you doing this time? She yelled so much that the friends, Harvey and his friends who played poker every weekend at a different home, his friends refused to play poker at Harvey's home. Why? Because Miriam yelled too much. It made them too uncomfortable. And Bob and Harvey, if you look at their life in the movie business, they yelled all the time. That was clearly a carryover from what what Miriam normalized in their household. So Bob yelled as Harvey yelled, and Bob could be an abusive boss. But Bob became an alcoholic at some point and went into Alcoholics Anonymous and therapy. And from that came out a somewhat different person, much more sensitive, much more reflective, looking at his inner self and trying to be, which I think he became, a better human being certainly a better human being than Harvey, and, and never accused of the kind of behavior with women that, that Harvey was. And in the end, he would constantly press his brother, press Harvey. Harvey, you need treatment. You're a sex addict. You're, he knew Harvey cheated on his wife. So he says he didn't know, though I pressed him hard on him. He says he didn't know that Harvey abused women sexually. But in any case, uh, Bob as you watch Bob over the years, as I did in this book, he begins to change and, and became a better person. Not a perfect person, and, and had his share of enemies as well, but a better person. So you've had no contact since the book has come out from Harvey, is that correct? Oh, correct. I had no contact outside of the email exchange. What happened, I would send an email to his PR person, who would then read it to Harvey on the phone. Harvey would then dictate his response because he's not allowed to have internet connections himself. But I've, ne- I've never talked to Harvey. And, and all through the trial, he wouldn't talk to me. He talked to me, and I have taped interviews from my 2002 profile in New York. I've got 12 hours of tapes. And then I have the email exchanges that he dictated from prison in response to my questions. And obviously, all his people talked to me. I mean, I... I, I did over 200 interviews for the book, particularly Bob. Bob was a particularly valuable source for me, particularly talking about the mother, the father, growing up, the early years of Merrimax, and, and how he, why he stopped talking to his brother. 
So what would you say to him in closing if you would talk to him or have communication with him? What would you say to him now? Harvey, tell me, you're, you're sitting in prison, you're about to go on trial in Los Angeles, the second trial. There's talk that you may be tried also in London for a series of, of sexual behavior, misbehavior there. What goes through your mind? How do you feel? How do you explain what you did um, to, to the world and, and, and to yourself? Those are some of the questions. I mean, when I when I prepared to do interviews with him, I spent many, many hours preparing just pages and pages of questions that I would ask him. I, I cited one before when he put his head on the pillow, what would he say? But there are many others I, I wanted to ask, including about his mother, Mary, who Bob answered, but I want to hear Bob Harvey's response to that as well. But I, I'd be fascinated talking to Harvey. And as far as you know, he and Bob have not communicated. No, they don't talk. They, they, they had Bob at one point when he thought Harvey had COVID. It was rumor in the press he had COVID. Actually, he did, by the way. But Bob didn't know that. Bob reached out through Bill Correo, Harvey's best friend, and said, is my brother okay? I'd like to talk to him. And, and Harvey sent a message back to Correo, who wrote to Bob, and I print the text of that, what he wrote. Harvey wants to know why you want to talk to him. And Bob's response to that was, I'm his brother. I was concerned about his health, and he's treating me like a, you know, a, a person who wants to do an interview first time when he's at the pinnacle of power. And, and he could, my brother's not a human being, he said. He, he doesn't have any ability to look inside himself, to have, express regret, express guilt. One of the things when you, when you study, which I tried to do for this book, what makes a sociopath? And, 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 and the psychologists say there are three basic ingredients to, to define a sociopath. One is narcissist. Harvey's a narcissist. Two is lack of empathy. If you watched Harvey listening to the woman who testified against him in trial and basically ignoring it, sometimes falling asleep, clearly he, he, he lacked empathy. And third is lack of guilt. Harvey has no guilt. He, he, he thinks of himself as a victim. Now, you could have all three of those qualities and not be a sociopath. But, but Harvey's behavior suggests that he was a sociopath. The book's called Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. Ken Oletta, I'm very grateful that uh, you were part of the Taking a Walk uh, podcast series and... Uh, continued uh, great work as always and thank you for taking the time. Thank you Buzz Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.